0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the ISBA BursaCast. This episode has been recorded and released on the 19th of January in the afternoon. We're going to be hearing from both John Murphy and Oliver Daniels from HCR to help us understand a bit more about the updates and what they mean for schools. So to help us get through the beginning of this Bursarcast, we are joined by the ineffable man, that is Mr. John Murphy. Thanks for being here, John.
1: (laughs) Hello, Leo. Hello, everybody.
0: Marvellous. So there's a few things to discuss here before we hear from uh, Oliver Daniels over from HCR to go over some more detailed things. But initially, there's a lot of strike action happening. What are the things that schools want to be taking away and really noticing and thinking about during all this time?
1: The first point is that it's a very fast moving situation. It's definitely a crisis that is creeping through the sector. One or two schools involved now, but many more people are beginning to get a a little bit restive uh, on the whole business of industrial relations. And this has helped in no way at all. by the trades unions who are seeking to extend the state school action into the independent sector by balloting individual schools, seeing what support they have, and moving on from there. There's a sequence of steps they will go through, which they have to go through in order to achieve uh, industrial action. So we've put out two notes on this. The first one was yesterday, and we've updated it today, which you'll we'll find in the library. But it will continue to be updated. And we're also going to produce the worst of all notes that we have to produce, which is what you do if there is strike action in your school, things like how to deal with picket lines, how to calculate a day's pay, what you do if teachers decide they're all going to come out in sympathy. So we have a lot going on in the background. So the answer to your question is, um, it's fast moving, first point. Second point, we will be advising as quickly as we can get the advice out. And the third point is, um, please be very clear uh, what the status of your school is, wh- which unions are involved and what support they have amongst the staff and actually how the staff are feeling about the whole business of industrial action. Some are obviously against it, but some are for it more so than perhaps we first thought.
0: Okay, sure. And then on a similar topic to this, which is the idea of minimum service levels and the recent bill that was passed, how does that affect schools?
1: That will be interesting to see what the detail is, but I suspect we will go back to a very similar situation that we had during COVID, uh, where we have to have schools open for um, those pupils who are the children of those in emergency services or vital services, however they choose to define that. Uh, Obviously, looked after children will have to be in school and um, any other of the vulnerable groups as well. So I think we'll, f- we'll, we'll flip back to that really as a sort of start point and then see where we go from there as a minimum standard of service.
0: Yeah, sure. And then flipping from this onto another topic that is constantly being discussed more so now than ever is the idea of cybersecurity in schools and the recent audit that was done. What's the takeaway from this? The
1: the, the audit was quite interesting, done by the National Cybersecurity Centre, um, it found that schools were in the main doing very well. But the problem is, of course, that the hacker is fundamentally knocking at the door of every school possible and is finding the weaker ones and picking them off. Um, So it's a case of not relaxing your guard at all, looking at everything routinely being done, like patching, taking backups, having an air gap between the backup and your, your normal server. But also looking at the emerging technology, and there's a piece which is quite interesting at the moment, although it's probably too expensive for schools, which is reacting to threats. And it, it constantly monitors the interface, if you like, between the outside world and the computer. It, it actually acts as a sort of first line defense and quite reactive in a way. So there's emerging pieces that will help. But in the meantime, please don't let your guard down. So then that's what comes out of that audit for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these things constantly are changing yeah. and you need to ensure that everything's always updated to the latest updates and patched up. So you, you're not going to fall by the wayside. Uh, and then the other topic that I wanted to ask you about is the topic of, let me file through my notes. Here we are. This is quite an interesting one. The idea of force majeure. And how this kind of is implemented and seen in schools because you can't always be in control of everything but what's the kind of the latest information on this that is a question i would quite like to do a lot of background reading in before i answer it well no
1: it's a good one because we answered it during covid um and it's one where we're going to see the whole thing coming back up again and i think what i'll do is and please include this in the podcast um to say we will take refreshed advice on this based on our template contracts and see where we stand what the sort of tests are that you would apply to be in a position where force majeure is applied or not um and just produce some clear guidance because it's an area where everybody thinks they're a little bit expert and they were for the last crisis they are not necessarily for this one
0: yeah there's there's no keeping up with it okay sure well that's to come i guess more information pending and then the on a similar kind of topic to do with law and schools, uh, the redundancy consultation and the idea that this is still required even when there is a pool of one and the occasions when there is a pool of one and it can't be avoided, but it's just about going through all the proper processes. Is that about right?
1: You have to do it to be fair to the individual. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but... Um, but it, it it's a process that has to be followed to the letter and to the precise day and week or whatever the the, the waiting periods are. Uh, you can't short circuit it. Um where you saw it spectacularly short circuited was with P and O ferries. Um mm-hmm. but really we should be treating people better than that. And we've got to go through these, you know, line by line to get them exactly right and to serve the individual properly.
0: Yeah. yeah there's just, there's no kind of speeding it up. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an important thing that really can't be avoided. You need to just go through all the proper channels. Uh, and that herein ends the reading. Uh, that's all I'm going to ask you for, John. That's That'll be it. I'll let you get back to your busy afternoon. I'm just going to jump in here and interrupt the flow of things to let you know we do actually have an advice and guidance note from Harrison Clark Rickabies regarding Force majeure, And it follows this. It is key to fully consider the drafting of any force majeure clause in your school's various contracts. Points for reflection are Ensure that any events which are of particular concern to your school are expressly included as a force majeure event, such as industrial action, epidemic and pandemic. Set out clear steps to be taken by parties seeking to enforce the force majeure clause, for instance notice provisions. Will your school want to include within the force majeure clause an obligation for the party affected by the force majeure events to take steps to mitigate its impact? In some circumstances, the force majeure clause will simply suspend the party's obligation whilst the force majeure event continues. However, you should consider whether it may be appropriate to allow either or both parties to serve notice to terminate the contract after a specified period. We would always recommend that you seek advice when preparing a contract or when considering whether to service notice on the other party pursuant to a force majeura provision. That's from Harrison Clark Rickabies. On with the BursaCast. And for this next bit we're going to be hearing from another voice and that will be the voice of Oliver Daniels who is a partner at Harrison Clark Rickabies, and his work tends to focus on the education and charity sectors. So Oliver, thanks for being here. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's a a pleasure. I'd I'd rather have you here to discuss the intricacies of these things than (laughs) me try to make sense of them. So it's great to have you. No problem. And there are three topics today that I want to dive into and get your thoughts on. And the first of those is the updates to the national minimum or living wage standards and the statutory rate increases that are coming. What are the details of these and what impacts are Bursa's kind of looking at here?
2: Yeah, this is a, a fairly brief update really for schools to be aware that the national minimum minimum and living wage and other statutory rate increases for 2023-2024 have been published by the Department for Work and Pensions and the increased rates take into account the rising rate of inflation and the current cost of living within the UK – in terms of the key takeaways for schools, the headline figure really is that the rate of the national living wage is increasing by 9.7% to £10.42. That really reflects the rising cost of living uh, within the UK. Equally, it's important to be mindful of the fact that rates for other statutory payments are increasing as well, including statutory maternity, adoption, shared parental pay and statutory sick pay. And all of those rate changes will come into effect from the 1st of April 2023. So in terms of what schools need to be doing, they obviously need to be ensuring that they are ready to be compliant with those new rates with effect from April um, and updating their policies, procedures and practices accordingly so that they are compliant and it would be prudent as well in terms of the statutory sick pay change to make sure that they're looking at any longer term absences that they might have amongst their staffing and making sure that in that period leading up to April um, the rates of SSP that are applied to those staff are adjusted accordingly.
0: Okay sure and then following on this theme of, of money really the, the next update is to do with a greater redundancy protection for pregnant women and new parents. This is something that's coming soon. What are the key things that people should be thinking about with this?
2: Yes, this is new legislation proposed by the government that essentially gives pregnant women and new parents greater protection in redundancy circumstances. And this is something that's been a long time coming actually. Um, The government uh, originally announced its intention to extend redundancy protection for new parents back in 2019. Perhaps fairly obvious reasons why there's been some delay around that, but um, we have now got proposals for new legislation to come into effect. Currently, an employee on maternity leave who's provisionally selected for redundancy gets enhanced protection in that they must be offered any suitable alternative employment that's available um, in priority over other colleagues. And it's a rare example within the law where you are allowed to positively discriminate and consequences of failing to comply can be quite significant. What this new piece of legislation proposes is to extend that protection to pregnant women uh, and also to new parents who've recently returned from maternity leave. It also proposes to extend the period in which that protection applies so that it begins uh, when an employee informs their employer that she's pregnant And runs up to 18 months from the start of their period of maternity leave. And the intention is to make sure that a mother returning from maternity leave can benefit from essentially an additional six months worth of protection in comparison to the current situation. Um, In terms of the key takeaways for schools on that, the first point is it's important to be clear that schools and employers generally are still able to make pregnant women or new parents redundant within that protection period if there is good business justification for doing so and schools are going through a fair and appropriate process. What the bill proposes is to put those individuals on an equal footing with staff on maternity leave so that when they're selected for redundancy, they get priority in respect of any available suitable alternative vacancies that might be available for them. Um, there's currently no indication as to when that new uh, bill might be implemented but we'll of course keep schools updated on that and if it is implemented in its current form then inevitably schools will need to look at updating their policies and practices to, to accord with that.
0: Okay sure so the, the key thing here is just to make sure that you're being thorough with all your kind of operations when it comes to redundancies and things like that
2: and I think being aware of that additional protection that applies for those in these circumstances so currently for those on maternity leave and as proposed extended to those uh, pregnant women and also those new parents returning from uh, a period of leave
0: okay sure and then this is flowing seamlessly into the next topic (laughs) which is to do with with time off but for this time for religious occasions and festivals and this i guess is quite a i don't know perhaps ambiguous bit of information uh, but what is the kind of key guidance for this on dealing with religious holidays for staff members
2: yeah and this isn't this isn't anything new but this is something i think we'd notice that we're seeing coming up on a more regular basis in terms of queries from schools around requests from employees for periods of leave for reasons of religious observance so it may be for example that an employee asks to take leave to attend a particular religious festival or event Um, and i think that increase reflects the increasingly diverse and multicultural uh, society that we live in and people celebrate a variety of different religious festivals and holidays in terms of how schools should be dealing with those kind of requests I think the first point to note is that there's no statutory right to time off work for religious reasons. So there's no uh, entitlement to time off in those circumstances. Nonetheless, schools should be mindful that if they are potentially refusing a request of that nature and there's not a good business justification behind that or that they haven't dealt with the request in a reasonable way, that could expose them to risk in terms of possible discrimination claims on grounds of uh, religion and belief. So with that in mind, it's important that schools give careful consideration to requests of this nature, deal with them on a case-by-case basis, and where possible look to be flexible in accommodating them, subject to any disproportionate impact on the school. And of course the approach to requests of that nature will vary depending on the nature of the request and the level of risk will vary as a result as well. Um, there are some general principles that can assist schools in dealing with requests like this. In particular, where requests are being considered, it's important not to favour the needs of one religious group over another. So that consistency of treatment is is important. It's also important to understand that religious observance doesn't necessarily override any other good reason for granting leave and schools also need to take into account any adverse impact of granting that leave on other colleagues uh, within the workplace. Helpfully for schools and other employers, ACAS have uh, published practical guidance on this topic. That highlights those key principles and is a really useful reference point for schools when considering requests of this nature.
0: Okay, sure. I mean, is there ever, or is there guidance on the occasion that numerous members of staff request the same day to observe a religious festival? What do you do in in that case?
2: Yeah, I mean, this this is something that's addressed within the ACAS note. um, And there are various suggestions within the ACAS note as to how you might address that kind of situation, whether you work on a first come first served type basis, or whether you put in place a uh, rota uh, with those staff who may wish to take leave for that particular religious uh, festival. Um, I think again, it's about being flexible, um, but considering those requests on a case by case basis and putting in something that you can uh, agree with staff ideally that staff are comfortable with, um, but isn't going to have that disproportionate impact on those colleagues who are um, continuing to work during that period.
0: Okay, sure. Thank you. Well, Oliver, that is. All I'm going to ask you for, I think you're you're a very busy man and I would hate to take up more of your time, <laughs> but that's been fantastic helping us understand a little bit more about these updates and the implications for, for schools. So that's been brilliant. No problem. My pleasure. Brilliant. Catch you soon. Thank you. So with all of the updates taken care of, we're going to hear now the top three advice and guidance questions and answers for this week. Question one is May an individual start work in regulated activity having completed all recruitment checks without a DBS certificate, which has been applied for but not received, provided we have completed a risk assessment to minimize any potential risk? The answer to this is yes, do start the individual, but ensure you have carried out a separate barred list check, check their identity completed and revise a risk assessment, ideally every two weeks or if circumstances change, and ensure the individual is appropriately supervised. Loose supervision would seem appropriate given the circumstances described. And there's more information on this in the Kixie handbook, paragraph 247 and 248. Question 2. I am seeking advice on the safeguarding checks that would be required if we were to employ a Ukrainian refugee. The answer here is, essentially, it is business as usual. There's no leniency about references, etc., but do refer to the information about recruiting teachers from overseas, which includes the passage, if you're carrying out safeguarding checks on Ukrainian citizens, they can apply to the Ministry of Internal Affairs of Ukraine for a criminal record check. This will be emailed to them, and they may then contact the Ukrainian embassy in the UK for a translation of the criminal record check and a letter confirming its validity. Should you have issues finding suitable references, use the Kixie guidance advice on overseas checks in paragraph 280.285. Another source of information to support a risk assessment is the International Child Protection Certificate, which can be found at acro-police.uk forward slash icpc. Question three is our Chair of Governors has resigned. Please may you confirm what we need to do in terms of proprietor checks. The answer here is the DfE's updated guidance on the required checks for proprietors and chairs of governors is in ISBA document 2889 and includes a DBS application form for completion. Do note Verifile will contact the applicant once DfE have been able to process the application. The following pages 96, 97, 103 and Appendix 2 on page 188. In the ISI commentary, may also help. And ISBA's top tip of the week is in relation to the unions and threatened strike action. There are two useful documents the first of which is the Trade Union Recognition Guidance in ISBA Document 718, and Dispute Over Pay, the Threat of Industrial Action in ISBA Document 2984. And moving on to the ISBA Professional Development Programme. We, of course, have face-to-face conferences coming up just next week. The Mock Tribunal is on Tuesday, the 24th of January. And we have the Finance Conference, which has been rescheduled from previously, which is going to be on Tuesday, the 7th of February, 2023. More details about both of those can be found on the ISBA website. In terms of webinars, the next webinars happening are the 20th of January on business rates preparing for 2023 revaluation the 27th of January, TPS update, I suspect this will be very highly anticipated, and the 31st of January, there are actually two, Biodiversity Net Gain Now and Beyond 2023, and the ICSA update. The ISBA also has an online Safer Recruitment course, which is CPD accredited and is available on the ISBA website, so please look through that if you wish to do it. And as mentioned last week by Helen, there are two online self-paced courses available, and these are on cybersecurity and logging and recording a major incident. The final thing to note is, of course, the ISBA annual conference, which will be held from the 23rd to 25th of May at Manchester Central Convention Complex, and we hope to see you there. Just before we end this episode, I'll let you know about the regional group meetings that are happening. The next three that are occurring are the 20th of January at 9.30am for London, that one's virtual, the 25th of January at 930 for the North East, that's face-to-face at Bootham School, and on the 30th of January at 2.30pm there is one for the Solent, and that one is also virtual. So that brings this episode of the ISBA Bursacast to a close, thank you so much for joining us, I hope it's been useful and interesting. If you did find it so, please make sure to share it with members of your team and subscribe wherever it is you're listening so you never miss an update.